I'd like you, if you would, to turn to Revelation 29. We're going to finish chapter 21 and begin chapter 22 this morning. We are in this series that I've entitled, Welcome to the Future. I think this is a timely message for our church family this morning in that recently um, my wife's mom has gone to heaven, Brother Frank Hall has gone to heaven, and if Preston hasn't, he's going to soon be going to heaven. And so we're turning to Revelation to come to what is the most detailed description of the Christian's eternal home, heaven. I love this chapter. I, I hope it will be an encouragement to you today. I've entitled it, I Call It Home. Last time when we met together, uh, we talked about when everything is made new. Remember that? God said he makes the heavens and the earth new. And we just can't imagine what that will be like. The entire planet has the curse of sin removed from it. Weather patterns are going to change. The topography is going to change. Everything in heaven and earth is going to be made new. And I just think that's beyond our little pea brain's ability to comprehend that. It's going to be a wonderful day when the Father and the Son and the Spirit uh, are, are with us physically. We're, we're housed with them in, in heaven. In his perfect time, God takes his servants to heaven. He does that now uh, periodically. Some, some Christian is going to go to heaven today. Probably a lot of Christians are going to go to heaven today, here and there. But then at the end of, at the end, uh, of, of things, he's going to take every believer to heaven at the same time. We talked about this in the rapture. Right now they're going on this day or that day, but one day there's coming a day when every Christian alive on the planet is going to be raptured and he's going to take us. Now, we have these times like, uh, like recently where God takes them now in death. And one of the things I'm so grateful for is that during these times, when we have to say goodbye, God's grace is always sufficient for that day. I, you know, I don't need dying grace today, and you don't need dying grace today. But when it comes time, God makes that special grace available to his people. And I'm looking forward to I'm, I'm looking forward to heaven. Honestly, I'm not looking forward to dying. No one in their right mind looks forward to dying. But the after effect of that, for the Christian at least, is going to be fantastic. So God is coming not only to the end of the book of Revelation, but he's coming to the end of his inspired word. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable to us. So now we're in the last book. And we're approaching the last couple of chapters here, and we have this detailed description of heaven. Heaven has uh, a lot of names that people have given to it or found in the scriptures. Uh, I, I think one of my favorites is, and so I, I titled this today, I call it Home. We're going to our home. You remember that old gospel song, this world is not your home. We're just a passing through. Um, this is not our home. We're... We are pilgrims, the Bible calls us, and strangers. That means we are travelers in a foreign land, and strangers means we don't belong here. We belong somewhere else. So Paul says, your citizenship is already in heaven as a believer in Christ. So we're looking at this place that one day uh, we're going to go, and it's called our home. The last time we were together at the end of chapter, uh, at the end of chapter number 20, um, or the beginning of chapter 21, rather, we noted those who will be permitted to enter heaven. That's in chapter 21, verses 6 and 7. 
And then we looked at those who will be prohibited from entering heaven. That's in chapter 21 and verse 8. Today we're going to look at this city that's been, that's been being prepared for us uh, called the New Jerusalem. I believe that's where we're going to live. So let's read this. Not the entire passage we're going to cover today, but let's read a bit, a bit of a lengthy passage, starting at Revelation 21 and verse 9, and we'll read down through uh, verse number 21. Let's, let's do that. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the last plagues, and said, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. <coughs> And he carried me away into the, in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending, from, uh, descending out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God and her light was like unto a stone, most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The, the New Testament word jasper there would be our word diamond today, if you can, can picture that. Verse 12 says, this city had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the, at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. And the length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof, and 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall was, uh, the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, a chalcedony, the fourth, an emerald, the fifth, sardonyx, the sixth, sardius, the seventh, chrysolite. The eighth, beryl. The ninth, a topaz. The tenth, a chrysoprasus. The eleventh, a jacinth. The twelfth, an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl. And of the street of the city was pure gold, as it were, transparent glass. Now, I don't know. I would ask you, so now do you have a pretty good picture in your mind of what heaven looks like? Because even with that detail, I cannot picture what heaven's going to be like. That is an incredible description. This is a fantastic city. It's a place that you and I one day are going to call home. And so let's look at these verses today. And then we're going to get into, a little bit into, chapter 22. We'll probably go down to verse number 5. But let's let's ask God to bless our short time together and... uh, and encourage our hearts at the, the prospect of going to this fantastic place that one day we'll get to call home. Father, thank you for bringing us together this morning as your people. And I'm grateful for each person that's in this room. No one is here by accident. Uh, no one surprised you when they walked into this church today. 
And Lord, we are turning to a passage that for the Christian, it's fantastic. We can't wait to be here. And the longer we live, the more of our friends and our family are already at this place. And so it's going to be a sweet reunion one day in a fantastic, unimaginable city. And we're looking forward to it. So would you help our understanding today why you told us all of these uh, wonderful things about the city and may it, may it thrill our hearts. And, and then, Lord, I pray for those that might be here today that aren't Christians. Maybe they don't know you as Savior, Jesus. I would pray that you would impress upon them that this place is only accessible through the blood of Christ that we heard sung about uh, today. They can only come to the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ and forgiveness of their sins. So do in our hearts today from your word, and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, what you want to do. We pray in your name. Amen. Let's look at these verses together, can we? First of all, let's look at the, the, the text that we just read, 9 to 21. The glory of the city. The glory of this city. John describes this indescribable place, or he tries to anyway, called heaven. In verses 11 through 14, you have the city's distinction. It says something about this city that it doesn't say about any other city anywhere else in the Bible. It says that this city has the glory of God. Did you see that? In verse number, in verse number 11, this new city, New Jerusalem, having the glory of God. The implication is like nowhere else. Heaven is going to be a, a wonderful display of the glory of God. He said that this city is like a jasper. I mentioned a moment ago, that's, that's our diamond today. So I want you to think of this city that is reflecting and refracting the glory of God like a diamond would a brilliant light. That's what this city is. God's glory on full display. We have it, <coughs> excuse me, we have a few times in the Bible where God's glory is revealed just a little bit. Uh, back in Exodus chapter 34, Moses went up to the mount to fellowship with God. And the Bible says that he fellowshiped with God face to face. Do you remember that? When he came back down, he didn't have a clue that his face was glowing. I have a friend that uh, recently, uh, he announced he's leaving the Jefferson City Police Department. He's going to work over security at Y12 in Oak Ridge. And uh, pays a whole lot better over there. And I said... The only downside of that, in 10 or 20 years, you may come out there glowing at night, you're, you know. And he said, well, there's that. But you know, when Moses walked out of the presence of God, the Bible says that his face, it shone so much that he had to wear a veil when he was talking to Aaron or the other people because it scared him to death. Well, that would me. There's another time when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration and, and he, was, he was transfigured or his glory was revealed just a little bit. He appeared like a man at every other time, but on the Mount of Transfiguration, his glory was revealed. And Peter, James, and John, the only three apostles there, what was their response? They fell down to the ground in the brilliance of that light. It was absolutely amazing. There's Saul from Tarsus, and he's got letters that allows him to go persecute the church. So he's on his horse or his camel or whatever he's doing, and he's heading toward uh, he's heading toward Damascus. And all of a sudden, the glory of Jesus Christ shines, shines down from heaven, and it knocks him off his horse. Those are all partial revelations of the glory of God, and yet here 
This says that this city reveals the glory of God to everyone there. It's the glory of the city. The Bible says this, this city is surrounded by a beautiful high wall. There in verse number 12, three gates on each side of the wall, an angel standing at each gate, and the names of the tribes of Israel are inscribed in these 12 gates. The walls of this city rest on a 12-layer foundation, each bearing the name of the apostles. Judas won't be named there. The 12th apostle is probably most likely going to be the apostle Paul. This is an incredible sight. Remember, John is seeing this in a literal sense. God is showing him details of what heaven is one day going to be like. This is the city's distinction. I've described this a little bit. You, you read in the scripture what it talks about. Does it remind you of any other place on earth? No. Because we can't imagine what this place. This city is so different from every other city. There's the city's distinctions. Uh, then there's also in verses 15 through 17, the city's dimensions. When we say city, um, you know, and we can talk about Jefferson City. Or if we want to talk about a big city, we can talk about Houston or Beijing, China. This, this city is, is a little bigger. This is an amazing description of the size here. Some people debate the shape of this city, um, and they say it's probably a pyramid. It's 12,000 furlongs. Uh, in the square, and then at the point, it's 12,000 furlongs up to the point. The problem is it talks about this being four squares, so this city is most likely a cube. 12,000 furlongs broad, 12,000 furlongs long, 12,000 furlongs deep. It's a cube. Henry Morris says this in his book, The Revelation Record. He says this, the pyramid shape whether as in Egypt, Mexico, or the step towers of practically all ancient nations, seems always to have been associated with paganism. The first such structure was the Tower of Babel, and the Bible later always condemns worship carried out in high places. The cube was the shape specified for God of the holy place in Solomon's temple, where God was to dwell between the cherubim. Both the language and the symbolism thus favor the cubicle rather than the pyramidal shape. All right, so now you know what a cube, you, you have a cube, equal sides all the way around, right? But it uses this word furlong. I, I have a hard enough time converting miles to kilometers. I just, you know, I don't remember that formula. Um, but so when it comes to furlongs, what are we talking about here? Well... A furlong in ancient times equals one-eighth of a modern-day mile. So 12,000 furlongs equals 1,500 miles. Okay? You got this? We have a cube, and it's as tall as it is wide as it is deep. And the measurement by this... Uh, the measurement by this... Uh, uh, angel is 12,000 uh, 12, furlongs, but for us, that's about 1,500 miles. We have a 1,500-mile cube. That sounds pretty big. Let me ask you a question. How many, how many people, about how many people are in the world today? Eight billion? 
Isn't that the number? Sometime last November, they said our world topped 8 billion people. In Jefferson County here, we have 314 square miles. That means that in our county, Jefferson County, 314 square miles, we could put the entire world population in here and give everybody a little over a foot. Now, that'd be a little tight. Some of us need a little more than a foot. But you could theoretically do it. Terry and I, we used to live in, in um, Montana a long time ago. We lived in the Gallatin Valley. Our county was Gallatin. And when we first moved there, people would tell us, every person in the world can fit in the Gallatin, they can fit in the, in the Gallatin County. Well, I'm not that impressed with that today because we can do that here in Jefferson City. Except in Gallatin County where we have 314 square miles here today, they have 2,632 square miles in their county. So every person in the world, all 8 billion people, could have a little less than one square yard. That's a little more comfortable than one square foot. We get a little bit of room to spread out there. So I'm trying, I'm trying to tell you, there's 314 square miles in our county here. We can fit the whole world's population in here. It'd be tight. You wouldn't be able to scratch your nose, but it'd be tight. But you could put 8 billion people in Jefferson County. You can put 8 billion people in the 2,632 square miles of Gallatin County, Montana. Everybody can spread out just a little bit. So when we talk about this city that's 1,500 miles cubed, how big is that? Let's illustrate what that city would look like so you can understand the scale of what's being said. If we drew a straight line... From Newmarket, a straight line in air miles, Newmarket to Los Angeles, that would be 1,500 miles. Then you have to go north into Canada, 1,500 miles. You see the footprint of this city that we're talking about? This is a massive city. But that's not all of it because the Bible says this is a cube. It goes 1,500 miles into space. Every person in the world can fit in Jefferson County with one square foot. We have 314, we have 314 square miles. Every person in the world can fit in Gallatin, Gallatin uh, County, Montana, and get a little over a, or a little less than a yard because they have 2,632 square miles. Do you know how many? Do you know how many cubic miles? are in a 1,500-mile cube? 3.375 billion. I'm I'm throwing a lot of numbers out here. I just want you to understand, when this angel starts measuring, when he starts measuring out your heavenly home, he wants you to understand this is a massive city. That's bigger than most of the countries in our world. 1,500 miles cubed. Imagine a city where there is room for everyone. There are no no slums. There are no dirty places. There are no crime areas. This is a perfect city. Not only is it 1,500 miles uh, horizontally, but it's 1,500 miles vertically. Which leads me to believe you and I will be able to travel vertically. 
You see, when Jesus says, behold, I make all things new, the rule book that you and I play with and think through today, it gets thrown out the window. Jesus has been working on a place to prepare for us since he ascended back to heaven. And this is it. These are the dimensions of this city. It's, it is a huge place. Then you also have the city's design. Not just its distinction or its dimensions. You have the city's design. In verses 18 through 21, it talks about this wall and it talks about the foundations of it. John describes the materials used to construct this city. The city itself, the Bible says, resembles a diamond. It is constructed with pure gold, and it says in verse 18, it is transparent gold. This city rests on a 12-layer foundation, each layer covered with precious stones. And we read through that list, and I would rather not do that again just because of the pronunciation of some of those words. But scientists have taken those stones, and they have matched them to uh, the colors So I would like you to look at this wall and imagine this being the foundation of the city. It is beautiful. 1,500 miles long and 1,500 miles wide and 1,500 miles tall. A beautiful foundation covered with 12 precious stones that have been cut to perfection. It's hard to imagine a wall that looks like that or a foundation rather that looks like that. Our foundations and our buildings are so ugly, we put them underground. We cover them up. We don't want anybody seeing the foundation. It's an important part, but there's nothing pretty about it. But the foundation of New Jerusalem is going to be stunning. The Bible says it has on each of those layers the names of the 12 apostles. Heaven's going to be a fantastic place. This city is going to gleam with the brilliance of God's glory. The purest light there is. Reflected on all of these precious stones. And it's going to be a stunning place. If all that weren't enough, verse 21 says that the gates of the city, number 12, and they are a pearl. Each one, the Bible is clear on this, each one is one pearl. That's pretty interesting that he chose the pearl for that. I mean, in our economy, the diamond is far more valuable than a pearl. The the best pearl is not as much as the best diamond, as far as value goes. But we know some things about the pearl, don't we? We know that the pearl is the result of pain and struggle. We know that that oyster gets a little grain of sand in there, and that's got to be uncomfortable. I love the beach. I hate the sand. Like, like, like if we're going to go down to the beach, I don't like to just go to the beach and go walk on the beach. If I've got to put up with that sand, I'm getting in the water and having fun. My wife, she'll walk on the beach all the time. She loves walk on the beach. We'll be in Pensacola. It'll be, you know, January or something. We're taking our daughter back to school, and it's cold outside. Let's just go walk on the beach. I don't want to get all sandy if I'm not going to be able to play in the water. Sand just irritates me. And sand just irritates that oyster. And so to deal with that grain of sand, that oyster just covers it with a little bit of calcium. And then he does it again and again. And again, and again, and he takes what was a source of pain and, and, and uh, inconvenience and struggle, and he turns it into something that is precious. The gates of pearl represent the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ 
the crucifixion of Christ was unimaginable pain and suffering. And yet it is through his pain and suffering that we have access to God. And it's through the gate of pearl that you and I have access into this city of heaven. It's going to be an incredible city. All of these gems, all of this gold, these massive pearls, the street of heaven, it says, is such pure gold that it is transparent gold. I've never seen transparent gold. I've, yellow gold is the only thing I know of, and white gold. But transparent, I've never seen it. There are the, uh, there is this this city that is being uh, this city that is being prepared for us, and we have this description of it in the Bible. But is it not hard to picture? It's beyond our imagination. The city is lit by the glory. Uh, it's lit by the glory of God, it says. It's all of these things. And some of you have heard John Phillips talking about how a diamond, to best see the, the glory of a diamond, you put it on the backdrop of black velvet. Every, every diamond salesman knows this little trick. It can be the cheapest, uh, least quality diamond he has, but if he takes that thing and puts it on a black piece of velvet, boy, it looks great. But there's no blackness in heaven. There's no darkness in heaven. The Bible says there's no night there. And so you have this brilliant glory of God. It's the glory of this city. But not only the glory of the city, I'd also like you to see from from verse 22 down to chapter 22 and verse 5, the guarantees of the city. The guarantees of the city. Look at chapter 21, verse 22. He's described its physical appearance to us. He's tried to to give us a frame of reference for that. But then he says in verse 22, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it, still talking about the gates of heaven, the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a pure river of of water of life, clear as crystal. Proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads, and there shall be no night there. And they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Let's stop right, let's stop right there. The guarantees of this city. These verses reveal more of the wonders of heaven. In addition to its physical description, now we have some of the dynamics that work there. No sun, no night, no moon. There are things that work there, so we've got some guarantees. What are these guarantees that he gives us? First, I want you to see the guarantee of new relationships. 
Our relationship with God is going to be very different in heaven than it is here. In heaven, our relationship with God is going to be altered forever. First, there will be new interaction. Look at verse number 22. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. Today, we, be, we meet in buildings uh, and we gather together in this building as a church. Some of our brothers and sisters over in Ethiopia or in Kenya or in Zambia, they gather at a local tree. But they have a place that they gather, a designated place that they gather. And we don't, uh, when, when we do that, we don't physically approach God because we're separated from God by our flesh. So we don't physically approach him. We come before God through his son, this relationship that we have. He's the mediator that we have. But we don't have physical action with, or physical interaction rather, with God. But in that day, there are no buildings, no mediators. We will have direct face-to-face access with God himself. Look at chapter 21 and verse number 3. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. God himself shall be with them and be their God. Not talking about Jesus Christ. This is talking about God the Father. We're going to have a, a, a new interaction with him. Not only a new interaction, but also a new intimacy. The Bible says that we will see his face. In, ver- in chapter 22, in verse number 3, we'll see his face, and we, or verse 4 rather, and his name shall be in their foreheads. We're going to serve him. Our service to God is going to be perfect, and it's going to be righteous, and it's going to be right. There are a lot of things today that come between you and I and our service to God. We can get distracted from that. But there's, no, there's nothing in heaven to destroy our intimacy. Here it says in verse 4, we're going to see his face and his name shall be in their foreheads. This intimacy that we don't have now just because of, well, we've got this, Paul called it a veil. Remember that? He said we we see through a veil darkly. So there's the guarantee of new relationships. Our relationship with God is going to be made new. The guarantee of new realities. We've grown used to a lot of things in this world, don't we? In fact, God even accommodates that here. We've grown used to, I I mentioned this to you before, we've grown used to sunrises and sunsets. That's how we operate. That's how you knew to be here at a certain certain hour today because of the time that's involved. But there's, there's coming a time when all of these things are going to be made new and everything's going to change. There is the glory of the city in verses 21 or chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. We already talked about this, but we're reminded that the one who said, let there be light, is in heaven. It is in heaven. He is the light. He's going to light the city, and the Lamb is going to. There's the glory of the city. There's the gates of this city. It talks about these gates again in chapter 21, verses 24 through 26, and it makes, it makes note in verse number 25 that those gates of pearl... They're always going to be open. 
The only reason that people closed gates back in the day was because at night they wanted the defense of those gates, so they closed them. But they said, there's no night there, so there's no reason to close these gates. These gates are always going to be open. In chapter 22, the first five verses talk about the greatness of this city. When you, go to, when you travel, when you go to a new place, do you ever like to go and see like the sights of that particular city? Um, if you go to Washington, D.C., there are sights there to be seen. Um, we were in Tulsa recently, and Terry's brother took us around the city and showed us various sites in the city of Tulsa. Well, there are sites here in this new city as well. Verse number 1 in chapter 22 talks about this river of life, the water of life, symbolizing the unending flow of life that you and I have in eternity. It talks about not only this river of life, it talks about the tree of life. Let's pause right there because this is not the first time that the tree of life has been mentioned in the Bible. The first time it was mentioned was all the way back in Genesis. Do you remember that? We talk, God talked about the tree of life being there. But when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, uh, Garden of Eden they were banished. One of the reasons God banished them is so that they could no longer eat of the tree of life. Because they were now in a sinful state. God didn't, want, want, God didn't want them living forever in that sinful state. So he kicked them out and he banned them from the tree of life. You can go Genesis 3, verses 22, 23, and 24. Talk about that tree of life and them being banned from it. But in heaven, we have access to the tree of life. In fact, it says this, that this river flows... And did you, did you catch this? And again, I don't know how this looks. Is this a continuous long vine? or I don't know, but it says, it's, <coughs> excuse me, it says about this, this tree in verse number um, two, in the midst of the street of it, on either side of the river, there was the tree of life. Did you catch that? On either side of the river, but there's one tree of life. And it's, it's written in singular. And it says about this tree that it bears, it bears fruit year round. And here's where God helps us because we can't fathom a time without, uh, a time without time. In verse number, uh, two, it says that she yields her fruit every month. Did you catch that? This is, this is a reference to time in heaven. A month. How long is a month? 30 or 31 days except for February who got ripped off. They only got 28. Or once in a while they throw him a bone, he gets 29. But when we think of a month, that helps us that we, we know how long that is. But in heaven, there's no time. So why does he say he bears his fruit every month? I believe it's just to help us comprehend that this is an ongoing, eternally uh, fruit-bearing tree. It goes on forever and ever, this tree of life. Twelve different kinds of fruit. And it always bear it. You have, the, you have the river of life. You have the tree of life. In heaven, you have passed from death to life. You're never going to die. The life is there, and it's eternal life. And then it mentions, these words stand out, don't they? The end of verse number two, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of nations. What's that word doing in there? What did we note about heaven already? That there's no more sickness, there's no more disease. There's no more arthritis. We, we noticed all those things. And yet here, these leaves, it says, they're for the healing of the nations. Well, let's, let's see what Theodore Epp said. Theodore Epp wrote a, a commentary in the book of Revelation. Um, 
called Practical Studies of Revelation. This is what he said about that phrase, the healing of nations, these leaves that are for the healing of nations. It is said that the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The word translated healing is from the word from which we get our word therapy or therapeutic. Therefore, the leaves of the tree are not for the purpose of healing disease, but for the purpose of yielding continuous health to the occupants of Jerusalem. This further promotes the enjoyment of life in the holy city. That there will be no sickness in Jerusalem is evident because verse 3 says, there shall be no more curse. So this healing is like therapy. It is pleasantness. The healing of these leaves adds to the pleasantness of a perfect place. It's like an eternal spa day. It just goes on and on. This is just, it is a great place to be. It's overwhelming in its sight and then to have no more curse. When it says there in verse number three, there should be no more curse. Everything that is bad has been taken away. The curse brought sickness. The curse brought weeds. The curse brought violence and chaos and death. But all that is gone because it's passed, uh, it's passed away. There is no more curse. All things have been made new. Creation and heaven and the holy city, it has all been restored to the perfect state it was before sin came into the world. Everything about this place is absolutely perfect. Verse number 5 says there's no more night. No need of the smallest light, no candle. No need of the greatest light, neither the light of the sun, it says. No physical darkness, no spiritual darkness is allowed. So you have the guarantee of new relationships, but you also have the guarantee of these new realities. Everything's going to change. It's going to be a wonderful place to live, and you don't seem very excited about that. But you should be. And then there's the guarantee of new righteousness. Look at verse uh, 27 of chapter 21, because I just kind of read over that and didn't make mention of it. But there's a new righteousness in heaven. And there shall be in no wise... And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. No defilement ever again. No sin. No shadow of doubt. You ever deal with somebody and you're thinking to yourself, what's, what's she up to? What's he up to? No doubts like that. No jealousy, no antagonism, no offense, no lust, no covetousness. Everything is righteous there, perfectly righteous. That's unimaginable, but it's absolutely true. It's going to be a perfect place. I've spent the last several minutes now talking about this place called heaven. And I know, and you know, that I've fallen far short in being able to describe that to where you can picture it. This is an indescribable place. It's like a city we've never seen before. It is, it is a wonderful city lit by the glory of God himself, but I have a weak imagination and I have a limited vocabulary. So it's hard to describe what that is. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior... This is going to be your home. Just like Dr. Manley was talking today in Sunday school, we're talking about the apostasy that's going on in the world. And he emphasized again and again today 
this apostasy that we're seeing today must come to pass because God said it would. It has to come to pass. And in that same light, Christian, you you have to go to heaven because God said you would. This is where you're going forever. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can look at this passage of Scripture and you can try to imagine it, but you have, you have no way to get there on your own. It's only through Jesus Christ. This is a wonderful, this is a wonderful city. It's unimaginable what it's going to be like. Some of you are familiar with Squire Parsons. Uh, I stole my sermon title from half of, a, half of one of his songs. Squire's uh, 70 years old. He lives down in Asheville, North Carolina. And uh, he goes to Trinity Baptist Church down there. And earlier this year, uh, they, had him, they had him during their Bible conference come and he came to the platform. He doesn't sing. I don't think he travels and sing that much anymore. Um, but he came and sing. And I thought, what better way to end our service this morning? We'll close it out listening to Squire Parsons sing this song he wrote. So we're going to play this video, and then I'll come back and we'll wrap our service up today, all right? Would you, would you play that video?